This is Chatter. I'm Shane Harris. This week, journalist Alex Ward on President Biden's foreign policy. We all generally knew that the Zelensky-Biden relationship was tense, but like it was like yell match bad. So again, again, nothing sharpens the mind like having your country being invaded and then Zelensky's tone changes. But it was like really, really bad U.S.-Ukraine relations during the first year. The question a lot of people are asking is like, all right, you're welcome to say BB's bad, but like, are you actually going to do anything about it? And I've seen really no evidence that they will. They're trying to literally make everyone happy. And we all know that doesn't go well. It doesn't work well in my life and it doesn't work well in foreign policy. 2024, the messaging from both presidents, sort of the meta-narrative on the foreign policy is like, I'm, I won't start World War III. I won't get us into a stupid war. And like, who can not get us into a stupid war the best? We would hope most presidents don't get us into stupid wars. Yeah. Right. So like, but that's, that's the level of debate now. Alex Ward, welcome to Chatter. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, this is good. I'm glad we could be in the studio together. Yeah, this is lovely. Yeah, you know, it's just our, our little, like, uh, it's, it's not a bad spot. No, it's great. Uh, the name of the company, I don't know if I'm allowed to say You're it. You're like but Goat Rodeo? Uh, Goat Rodeo, it's, pheno- it's phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, the second I saw it, I was like, I'm all in. Exactly. The pens say excellent stuff on them. Yeah. And so I'm in, I know I'm in the, like, the right like you've come t- to the right yeah, place, the right tonal place. For yes, me. <laughs> exactly, exactly. You've been writing about goat rodeos for the past several years. That's that's, that's what we do. That's yeah, what we both do. That's well, what we both do. Exactly. <laughs> when did we ever write a story? And I mean this genuinely, like where each one one of us went. This is actually kind of like a good not goat rodeo story <laughs> where everything went according to plan. Yeah. Well, there is a. I mean, there's a story in your book that where things kind of went according to plan. Yeah. Fair. We, we'll, fair we, we'll get to fair, that. We'll talk about fair. the war in Ukraine. Um, but we are here to talk today about your new book, uh, which has just come out. The Internationalists, the fight to restore American foreign policy after Trump. Um, <clears throat> how long did how long were you working on this book? Talk a little bit about the genesis of it. You are a reporter at Politico. We write on the similar beats of national security. When did the genesis and the idea for this book start to take hold with you? Yeah, I mean, it was kind of right when Biden won. And I was thinking everyone was talking about, well, a president always has a lot of flexibility in their first year to do whatever they want. And they were talking about domestic politics and other things. I was like, wait, that's on foreign policy, too. I mean, as you well know, foreign policy is really the domain of the president, can kind of do whatever he to this point wants. So why aren't we talking about that? And plus, you know, it's more interesting now because the shift from Trump to Biden is so dramatic on foreign policy, far more dramatic, really, than any other uh, administration transition. So Mm. I started off just I mean, that's how I pitched. I was like, let's just do the one year of, of Biden. What do they keep? What are they not? And what does it sort of tell us about the state of American foreign policy today in the country? Yeah. They, you know, my publisher was interested. And then by, you know, Afghanistan happens. And towards the end of the year, it's looking like this Ukraine invasion is going to happen. And then my publisher goes, what if you just stay on it? <laughs> just stay on the story. Editors rarely ever tell you that unless well, usually it's file now. <laughs> no, exactly. In this case, they're like, don't file now. Look, yeah. keep, keep at it. And, you know, obviously by late February of 2022, it was like, all right, there's clearly a story here. You yeah. should be on this for another year. Yeah. And I, I agreed. And so it's now turned it turned into uh, from a somewhat kind of like 30,000 foot. What is this telling us about America and U.S. foreign policy? To, if I may, um, like a Woodward style esque mm-hmm. inside the room, mm-hmm. detailed account of like what what were they thinking, what was going on, because yep. that extra year actually gave me the time to kind of go back and be like, you know, because some folks were able to take a step back from Afghanistan and as Ukraine was happening, take a moment to reflect on on some decisions and some thinking. Um, so anyway, yeah, that's kind of how this all came about. Yeah, and I think you know there was that moment I think when when Biden won, and I think people, especially in our world, were thinking, all right, now. 
there's going to be some big remaking or reset or what. But you actually begin the book even before that with the victory of Trump and the defeat of Hillary Clinton. Uh, and Jake Sullivan, who was working on the campaign, who becomes a major figure, obviously the national security advisor in your book, kind of set the scene of the opening of the book. This is the wake of the Trump victory, and you kind of get these Obama figures in exile who thought they were going to be working for President Hillary Clinton, and now their plans have changed. What do they do next? Yeah, well, I think even just the backdrop of all this is, and and if I have a bumper sticker for it, is that the Biden foreign policy is built out of trauma. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a therapist. I'm not a psychologist. But like that was just how it kind of all felt to me working on this for two years. Mm So, you know, Jake Sullivan is a top advisor to Hillary Clinton. He is right next to her as she's conceding. And this is a guy who, you know, he's lived a very prominent life. He's a debate champion. He's been to Yale. He's a Rhodes Scholar. He's a very smart guy. He's called in public a once in a generation intellect. Mm-hmm. And so and he's grown up as the the right hand man in, to Hillary Clinton and Amy Klobuchar for a little bit. But he's steeped in this traditional Democratic uh, po- party, Democratic Party foreign policy thinking. And then he, there he is next to Clinton losing to Donald Trump, who is the antithesis of all of yeah, that. Right. Right. And she's frankly a paragon of it. So he kind of goes into this wilderness, this soul searching exercise with others. But mm-hmm. I, I use him as the, the main character here. And he's trying to figure out what did we miss? You know, it's not necessarily that Trump won on the strength of his foreign policy views, but he didn't lose on them either. And so there was clearly something that resonated and something that the traditional lists, let's say, had missed. So Sullivan goes out and starts to fig- talk to people around the country. And, and, you know, he's a guy from Minnesota. He cares deeply about his mid- mid- middle class roots. And he comes up, you know, he founds an organization, but he comes up with this general moniker of a foreign policy for the middle class, a.k.a. everything the U.S. does abroad has to have some sort of connection back home. So... You know, why is the U.S. extending its nuclear umbrella to South Korea? Why does that matter to a coal miner in West Virginia? Or, you know, the U.S. should remain in NATO. Why should that matter to a farmer in Kansas? Like, he tried to answer those questions. And and now, even today, as they defend the defense of Ukraine and um, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, they do kind of always bring it back to that general point. Um, And this thinking vibes with Biden quite a bit, right? He's Scranton Joe. He's a middle class guy. Uh, it's not Biden didn't take too much convincing that this was needed. There was a symbiosis there. And so Sullivan becomes a Biden campaign person. And together they kind of create this intellectual world uh, underpinning to their whole foreign policy. How much of Jake's idea that and others, too, um, that a new foreign policy had to focus on the needs of the middle class is born out of a realization that. Trump was speaking to, I think, a middle class in American politics that the Democrats had either overlooked or misunderstood. Uh, completely. I mean, uh, you know, Trump would never put it, I, if I may, this like succinctly or, or, or cogently. But I think when he was saying like, look, we've tried to be nice to China and look what's happened to our middle class. Yeah. What I mean, really what he's saying is like, well, you know, what he, I think he's attempting to say yeah. is that trade policies and a focus on engagement, really since the Nixon administration yep. with China, has failed and it has hurt, genuinely hurt Americans. Yeah. And I think Jake and others felt that. They felt that there really needed to be a reorientation of, of policy towards China um, and there needed to be a rethinking of trade policy and not only for the national security space but for, for, the, for economics. Yeah. Um, and this kind of in, in, is infused throughout. So one of the questions I was always asking myself when writing this was, 
how much of Trumpism isn't Bidenism? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, they prefer I say populism, I'm sure. But there is a bit of Trumpism in Bidenism. I don't think we can deny that, and uh, which, is, which I find fascinating because, again, Biden being this, like, the avatar of traditional democratic foreign policy thinking, right? He's three years old when World War II ends. Mm-hmm. He's grown up in the world America made. And here he is effectively adopting some ideas or, or at least some viewpoints of a billionaire New York real estate mogul mm-hmm. who went on a very conservative populist route. And he's that's part of part of what they're doing is to appeal to the Trump voters. So there's polit- domestic politics in it. But I think a genuine belief that whatever worked after World War II is that that no longer necessarily works fully now and needed a software update. And that's what I tried to explain. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, it's an interesting thought experiment, but had Hillary Clinton been elected president, would the Democrats have rebooted in that way? Or would you think they would have continued more down that road of pro-globalization, pro-trade, which, of course, Bill Clinton was really, you know, the the, the arbiter of? No, I think I, I think we would still, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Yeah, totally. I, 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 don't, yeah. I, don't, I don't, I think if... It would have been seen, look, despite what Trump was saying, Clinton wins. It is a repudiation of that view. Traditional thinking has existed, and I think you you would not have a foreign policy for the middle class. You wouldn't have human rights at the center of a foreign policy. You wouldn't have a lot of these things that, that they're saying. I mean, you might still have the Inflation Reduction Act and green tech investments and uh, maybe some tariffs or export controls on China because it's China, but not encased in this sort of intellectual framework that they've tried to, to put forward. And no, there's no question, again, there's politics. And I'm saying intellectual framework in the sense that there is sort of a doctrinal thinking here. But there's, of course, it's all about politics always at the end of the day. But but to your point, truly, like the introspection begins because Trump won. And that's why I think it's sort of born of trauma. Like not everyone did some soul searching after Trump won. Right. I mean, it was a defeat, of course, of Hillary Clinton, but it was a defeat of establishment thinking in general and so if you're of the foreign policy set, you're thinking, what did we miss? And Jake was at the forefront of defining what that rethink needed to be. And talk a little bit about, like, <clears throat> what that looks like when these guys kind of get in a room together. Are they, you know, you, you, there are these kind of retreats that they go on. If it's Jake and Ben Rhodes and Ned Price, who's another name that people remember as most recently State Department spokesman. Um, what does that look like when they decide to kind of get in a room and come up with this framework? Or another way is, like, how are we going to tell a story? That is different for people about foreign policy. What are, what are some some stories that stand out uh, uh, best to you that are illustrative of that? Yeah. So they, uh, Jake and Ben Rhodes, who you mentioned, they found an organization called National Security Action. It's back, by the way. Uh, uh, they just, <laughs> back and ready. They're back. back. Tanned, back in action. Tanned, rested, and ready. Um, but they're back. And but their whole argument was the right has a infrastructure to create foreign policy and other thinking the left doesn't really I mean center for american progress would disagree but that that was their general contention and so they created this organization which is the whole goal was we are going to almost be the transition for the next administration on foreign policy we're gonna have all these white papers done and by the time we have a nominee they have all their stuff ready to go so to one of the stories they hold this retreat in new mexico you know they're having like tacos and they're going on horseback rides and they're going to spas but they're also having these knockout drag out fights over what the message should be and and in one of the scenes you have jake point to ned price as you said was state department spokesperson and ned's like uh i don't know like russia like maybe (laughs) then you have ben rhodes go like it should be the republicans are the threat to democracy and and they just kind of go around and you realize actually there's a wide view of what the problem is 
And so that was sort of part one is to find what the problem is. And I, and I think now their answer has generally been the, pro- the problem – well, I think implicitly the problem is Republicans. I think they would say the, the issue is that there is a uh, move away from small-D Democratic viewpoints and values – and that those need to be inculcated. And then part two is you get support for that when you show that your policies are working for people. And so when they think about foreign policy, they try to make that case. Just a, a note, I mean, the Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, who I think would be as traditional foreign policy thinkers you could imagine, right? mm-hmm. he worked for Biden for many years. He gave a speech um, which was basically the foreign policy for the middle class. But for him to give it meant it like that was adopted, mm-hmm. meant that that had finally worked its way through to the top. Um, granted, of course, you have Jacob in the White House and Biden in the White House, but that this was now the viewpoint. This was now the thing. And so it took months, <laughs> a year plus, but like it got there. It, that's now it's something that he now believes. And I, I know that from talking to people around him. It's not something he felt he had to do. It's something he was like, oh, OK, I know why you guys got here. There's there's a lot of truth to it. We need to better connect this stuff and I and my whole little spiel there of you know a nuclear umbrella et cetera like it's somewhat adopted from the speech that Blinken gave. Mm-hmm. I mean those are kind of the words they're starting to say. And how does it really? How does a foreign policy for the middle class play out in real life? Like what what are the policy actions they've taken? I mean how do they? How does the war in Ukraine get framed as mattering to somebody you know who's working two jobs and just trying to make ends meet? Yeah, I mean they're being actually oddly explicit about this point. So they would say, well, two two points, one of which is a little more highbrow or pie in the sky than the other one. The other one's a little more tangible. The, the pie in the sky one is, well, if we don't stop Russia and Ukraine, Russia's going to go take NATO territory and then we're going to be obliged to go fight them. And so therefore, it's actually cheaper and better for the middle class to, to fund the Ukrainians and, and arm them so that Russia is, is, is stopped there. That's sort of the bigger one. The, the more tangible one is they go, well... We are sending our old weapons to Ukraine, which means we have to make new, more advanced weapons. And who's making those? People at factories in Arkansas and in Mississippi and Alabama. And so there's actually a jobs program element to this. We are making stuff in America. There are manufacturing investments that have to happen if we're going to do all of this stockpile replacement. So it's a bit of like we don't want to send your kids to war, and we also want to give you jobs on a factory line. That is – I'm not just extrapolating. Like, that is explicit messaging from the Biden administration. So that that is, I think, how they are thinking about selling a defense of Ukraine is, is in part of, like, there's actually tangible economic lifestyle benefits for you. I've often wondered, too, how much of that – when we when they say a foreign policy that matters to the middle class is, yes, they have to sell it. But what's underneath all that is I, I always have sensed maybe a frustration of, like, you know, like, damn it, you should care about American foreign policy. Like, it's making Americans – care about the role of America in the world after, you know, not just four years of sort of isolationist tendencies by Trump, but, you know, 20 plus years post 9-11 of America watching, you know, us get entangled in foreign wars that seem to have no end. It's like, how do you make Americans care generally about foreign policy at all when it they arguably some people just going to say, screw it. You know, we, we tried Afghanistan. We did Iraq. I mean, is is some of the is it do you think it's is it deeply felt policy, you know, brain work here trying to connect to the needs of the middle class or how much of it is also just kind of a sense of like we got to figure out a way to sell this to people to make Americans care about something we think they should just implicitly care about? I mean, I think it's a bit of both. 
right? I mean, I, I, at risk of historically overstepping, I feel like we're living in like an Afghanistan Iraq hangover, mm-hmm. right? Kind of yeah. like a Vietnam hangover. And so it's, right. it's one reason why you get Trump. It's one reason why you get Biden's whole thing here. And and you know, going skipping ahead a bit, but you know, for twenty twenty four. The messaging from both presidents, sort of the meta narrative on the foreign policy is like, I'm, I won't start World War Three. I won't get us into a stupid war. And like, who can not get us into a stupid war the best? Yeah, yeah. Like that's kind of most presidents don't get us into stupid wars. Yeah. Right. So like, but that's that's the level of debate now. Yeah. And yeah. so it's sort of interesting that like the tone of all of this has changed. And, and I think that that's implicit in both the Trump and Biden arguments is. We're no longer going to do all. We're not going to run roughshod around the world anymore. We've we've lost all of our capital, like yeah. political, economic, and social capital, on on these bad choices. We now have to be a lot more judicious. There's that old phrase, like you know, we're out of money, gentlemen. Now it's time to start thinking. Mm. And I think we're sort of in that time to start thinking moment. Well, and that's actually a really good transition to like the first really major policy, foreign policy decision President Biden has to make, which is ultimately the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Remind us a little bit about what his longstanding position had been, because he, he comes into this with some priors. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the notion that Biden came in being like, I'm totally open to debate on this, I think is yeah. is, uh, is wrong. Yeah. Um, look, during the Obama administration, he was vice president. He was clear. It's time to send most of the troops home and have a counterterrorism plus strategy, a.k.a. leave a couple thousand troops behind or a couple hundred, depending on the situation, have them just fight terrorists and be done. Let's not try to create a democracy in Afghanistan. Um, oddly enough, the person who helped him devise that plan is a guy named Tony Blinken. Uh, <laughs> um, so come to you know the start of the of the Biden administration, and they already have a dilemma, which is Trump has made a deal with the Taliban that the U.S. has to get out. And Biden has two strongly held views. One is that once the U.S. makes a deal with a political entity, it should be held. Even should, if it was the previous administration. If it, was the, it should yeah. be honored. And the other is, I want to get out of there. We should not also discount the, the the loss of his son, Bo, and what effect that had on him when it came to, to just thinking about America's place in war. But that was a big part of it. So they do have this, you know, and anytime you talk to the NSC, I know you do too, all they go is like, look, Alex, we have these very thorough, intense, like, you know, inclusive reviews, and we're taking in all sides. And I, they did that. They totally did that. But it's all, of course, to persuade the president who was unpersuadable. Right. He was already going to want out. And they basically that whole review was allowing the military to make their best case to continue. And they didn't convince him. So we withdrew. And that uh, that was and some, a, def, uh, a decision that Biden has defended from the moment he made that decision through now. What does it tell you about Biden as a leader that even though his mind was made up, and I think you do make quite persuasively the case in the book that it was it was always going to be this, that he nevertheless, you know, entertained this policy discussion. And you even recount meetings where he's saying, you know, people are putting really consequential decisions in front of him, and he said, "Let me think about it." He, it's like he's 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 keeping his mind open, but it's never really that open. But what does it say to him about him as a leader that he allowed that process to occur and presumably encouraged it? Yeah, I mean, there could be something he missed, right? I think Biden is a creature. Well, I don't think Biden is a creature of D.C. He knows uh, how these things work. He was vice president for eight years. And I think in his mind, he went, look, there there may be something that was going on within the, the government, within intelligence that I don't know. So bring it up to me. And maybe after the time I've been out of government, maybe the military came up with a better thought on how you actually win. So let them present that to me. He gave them four months, like a decent amount of time. 
Uh, not as long, if you recall, Trump basically fought with H.R. McMaster, the national security advisor, mm-hmm. for nine months before he made the decision to send more troops to Afghanistan. But Biden, there was the ticking clock of the, of the yeah. Trump-Taliban deal. But for four months, I mean, Jake was telling Chairman Mark Milley and, and, and others, like, what do you got? You know, send, send it up, send it up, see, see what the president says. And they try it. I mean, it's it's in the book. It's out and also in the open. You know, there there were thoughts of let's keep 3,000 troops behind or maybe we can, you know, delay a with we'll, we'll say we're going to withdraw, but we'll, we'll delay it over time and we, so we can do it, you know, more safely and in case there's some issues. And Biden was like, no, we're out. Like, I'm, I'm done. We're, we're done. America is done. This is a war we no longer want to be a part of. We no longer should be a part of. And we've wasted too much time and resources and people uh, on this fight. And I have to say, you know, this the Pentagon – this is an interesting point, I think, for um, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, because Biden, during the Obama years, was extremely upset at the Pentagon, quote-unquote, boxing Obama in, leaking plans, making it look like he had to send troops, and if he didn't, he was ignoring the Pentagon. And here you have Austin knowing he's overseeing a Pentagon that wants to continue the war, that wants to stay. And the second Biden makes the decision, Austin tells his people, like, you've made your case, time to execute, and keeps a lid on it. Now, of course, all this stuff has leaked out that this, these are the plans they wanted, but like a f- relatively quiet Pentagon, a relatively um, kind of acquiescent, like, all right, like the president made the made the decision. Here we go. And no real griping, at least in public, about it. And it's been one of the, I think, 10 uh, hallmarks of Austin, which has just been like, you know, the occasional quiet pushback in the Situation Room. He will fight with the president on on certain things, but once decisions made, he's, he you know he's, like, he's a good soldier. Yes, sir, and everyone sort of follows. So it, I, I I thought about this on the Afghanistan decision because I was really wondering as I was writing like how is the Pentagon going to react to this? And they went gung like they went full throttle. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. They're like, all right, speed is safety. We're out of here. Yeah. Um. And so anyway, I I, I just I know that's a bit of a digression, but. Um, I find that bit fascinating because it was a, a truly different atmosphere than it was in the Obama years and even the Trump years. And it's so interesting that, I mean, it makes me think that because Biden gave everybody the chance to be heard, to have their peace, and everyone was heard and everything was considered from all the different angles, that maybe it makes implementing for the Pentagon and military leaders the the decision that they wished he wouldn't take, it still makes it easier to implement because they had their shot, right? I mean, it's not as though he said, we're doing this and I don't want to hear it. He he, he heard everyone out. There's no question. I mean, the, this even though I made fun of it earlier, this like extensive, inclusive yeah. process, that is the benefit is yeah. that every, I mean, there was no one, truly no one in the Pentagon I talked to at the higher levels that felt like they couldn't make their case. Now they disagreed with it and they will say it today. I mean, uh, Frank McKenzie, who was a CENTCOM commander, to this day, it's like, what a bad decision. I advise against it. Fine. But in the moment, like that he felt like it's not like I didn't get my point across. Everyone knew. Everyone knew how I felt. The president, Jake, the secretary, everyone knew how I felt and what I advised. And I me- wrote memos. Scott Miller, who was the head of the Afghanistan mission, same thing. They all felt like they'd got their point across. The president just didn't agree. They didn't convince him. And that the president's elected and he makes the call and the civilians are in charge. Yeah. And, and, and of course, I mean, one of the reasons why I think people were so quick to criticize the decision, of course, is because the pullout is visibly disastrous, right? We all remember the images of people trying to jump on the wheels of planes, falling off of planes, of the horrible suicide, you know, uh, bombing, of, you know, people who left, who worked for the United States being left behind. I mean, you write very evocatively and movingly in the book about people essentially having to play God, deciding who gets a visa to get out and who doesn't. Um, 
Talk a little bit about that reporting because, I mean, in the midst of it, we were all watching this on television. We were all frantically trying to figure out what the hell was going on. You've had the benefit of kind of stepping back and, you know, trying to assess all of it. What are so your, your your best explanations for why that pullout was so chaotic? Or was it not as chaotic as it may have looked? And people always understood that it was always going to be bad. And what you're just seeing is the crappiness of an inevitably crappy situation. Yeah, I, I think I probably nuanced this to death. So I'll do my best. Um, I, I was always holding two, con- two seemingly contradictory thoughts in my head, which was they pulled off the greatest airlift in human history. And, and, and one of the you know great escapes, if you will, not perfectly, but one of the great escapes. And we all saw what we saw. How do you reconcile the two? And the answer I stumbled, well, stumbled upon is too, is too informal. But the answer I think I, I came to, and it's, it's, it's still a somewhat of fluid historical analysis. But the, the decision to withdraw, even though we just talked about Biden and his priors, others were convinced that when they were saying, OK, if we leave, what do we do? We have Afghan allies there. And we have our troops. How do we all get out safely? Well, they were told, well, the intelligence tells you you have 18 to 24 months before the Taliban takes over. So that's not to say that the administration dilly-dallied in making all the plans, but they felt they had a lot more time. Of course, we all know that they didn't uh, now. And and so I think they imp- they improvised pretty well. They kind of like Wayne Brady their way through, uh, <laughs> not to put too light a picture on it, but through, through, the, through the withdrawal. And... There are these moments where you go, you know, the, a guy I profile in the book is named Sam Aronson. He is a young guy. He's just literally on the front line of the airport making life or death decisions. You know, either you get in by yourself and leave your family behind or you stay here with your family. Like the, in a moment like that, you can't say the policy's working, right? And the policies would change on who they could let in all the time and people are getting frantic calls. And, of course, we know about the 13, you know, killed service members. So the conclusion I come to on it is – it was always going to be chaos because it was a 20-year – of course, they've been at war for 20 years. It's the Taliban's in charge now. It was always going to be chaos. Did it have to be that chaotic? It doesn't seem like that's the case. They had the time. They thought, or they, they acted as with thinking that they had the time. They didn't. Things were being improvised, of course, and then they still got all those people out. So it's a decent improvisation, but it didn't have to – it didn't need all of that. So with a bit more thinking, so this was actually one of the questions as part of the reporting is, I'm, and I'm thinking, you know, I've read some news stories and I'm not a great Afghanistan expert, but like all I'm reading is the Taliban's outside the city, like ready to move. And they've been planning for this for a long time. Why is no one questioning the 18 to 24 months? And the answer I always got back was, well, that's, you know, one, and you know, intelligence better than I do, but that's one assessment. And also, you know, that, that always gets revised. But, okay, all well and good. But at the time of the decision, it was 18 to 24 months. So it's fine that the intelligence, you know, shrunk the timeline later. But the decision was made. So all this to say is that I think the, you know, Biden had his view. No one really questioned the timeline. And things just had to be done on the fly. So, unfortunately, the withdrawal was as chaotic and, and deadly as it was, but it, it, it could have been worse. It also could have been better. So I'm sort of in this weird in-between space yeah. where I don't have a brilliant answer here other than um, anyone who tells you it was a bad withdrawal is is overstating it, and anyone who tells you it was a good withdrawal is, is just clearly ignoring a lot of facts. I always thought, too, that when I think when, when Biden – I think it was when he I think he did a national address not long mm-hmm. afterwards and it always struck me that his his attitude and his posture was sort of like of an of a parent saying to their 
kids who've been, you know, complaining, you know, like, this was always going to be hard. Quit your bitching and go to sleep. I mean, it really was he owned the decision. I mean, which, I mean, I do think is to his credit in the face of a visibly chaotic event. He owned it. He didn't try and shirk the blame publicly on anybody else and say, oh, the CIA screwed up because they told me that it was going to be 24 months or whatever. I mean, it, it, am I wrong there? I mean, it seemed like he kind of just said, it's my decision. I made it. We're moving on. Yeah, no question. But it's it, it was so at odds with his whole persona of like empathetic Joe and he right. cares yes. about people, right? That's right. Yeah. And there's it was this weird split screen where like, fine, you're welcome to make the strategic decision that it doesn't make sense to be in the mm-hmm. war anymore. But you're saying all this kind of callously, as all of this chaos is happening totally. around the world. So it just it just it was a it was just this weird moment. And you know, if you if you're Sam Aronson at the Kabul airport, you're seeing that and you're going like, uh, f- dude, yeah. like, do you do you not see where I'm at right now? Like, yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. I'm seeing people die in front of me. I'm yeah. I'm seeing people you know defecate in front of me. Like, yeah. it's a horrible scene out here. Yeah. People with chill, you know, people are dying from heat stroke or, or fainting. Like. It's horrible. <laughs> and I have to tell families you have to either break up permanently or stay here and maybe get killed later. Like, so it's hard for me. I, you, you can go at the macro level and think, yes, it was the rest of your decision. And, you know, there was always going to be chaos. That's that's fine. And, and in fact, I, I'd agree with that view. But I also agree with the view that it didn't have to be as bad as it was. It didn't have to be as um, improvised and as chaotic as it was. And so again, I don't really have like a super satisfying answer. It's, it sounds a bit all sidesy here, but it's it's the truly I think the the right one, in that the the administration forgot some things, and then even though they forgot some things, they improvised really well. It's also such a powerful reminder, I think, of the stories that we tell ourselves as a country and that we remember, because I think everyone was watching the pullout and the airlift, and the memories were of Saigon you know, in the fall of Saigon and watching helicopters lift people off of the U.S. embassy and Americans fleeing and running away. And I think that, I mean, that's, that's of course, the image that everyone has in their head, and it becomes inescapable, even if the facts don't necessarily neatly mesh up with that narrative. It's that image, isn't it, of like we're telling ourselves this 20 years in Afghanistan was all for naught. It was a waste. And look at what's happening. And it, and it strikes me that, that that is the political albatross hanging around the president's neck in the re-election, right? Yeah, no question. I mean, if, if Biden's main meta outside of the World War III thing narrative is, I am the steady hand at the wheel, Trump is chaos, all he has to go is say Afghanistan. And yeah. we all know what that means. Right. Like, right. It, I mean, it's, it's a bit of marketing, but like when you think of Afghanistan, even, even me, I remember those scenes of the plane. I remember you know, my conversations with Sam. I remember the, the videos that I saw. I remember the Taliban sitting in, in the, like, Afghan presidential palace. Just, like, even they looked stunned they were there. Like, <laughs> <laughs> they, and so, and, and so, like, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't look good because it's not good. Yeah. Like, you can't, you can't really spin it. The only thing that I think, again, that they can say is, in the face of a horrible situation, they did decently well. But again, I don't want to say it was good necessarily because again, thirteen service members died and all that stuff. But I don't. I'm sorry, not all that stuff. Thirteen service members died. A bunch of people were injured and hurt, and there was, of course, the um, the quote unquote righteous strike on the terrorist who wasn't. Mm-hmm. So a lot of bad happened. Um, so you can have a bad chaotic withdrawal and still do some good, which I think is maybe that's the right bumper sticker is a bad chaotic withdrawal where they still did some good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> um, you, you can't ignore the fact that they got 120,000 people out through through an airlift. I mean, a, a massive logistical feat considering the crisis there. But 
we cannot also ignore the fact that there are still Afghan allies in the United States left behind when they were told they would not be. Uh, and now, of course, even as, the, as we're talking, they're debating these national security bills, and one of them is like the Afghan Act to let people back in, and like it's not clear that's going to make it through. So anyway, all this to say is that um, it, it is a political albatross. It is something that I keep hearing the Biden folks say, like, okay, but Alex, do you still want us in Afghanistan? Like, is would that have been better? And strategically speaking, you can say no. Like, I'm not saying that I agree with that view. I'm just saying, no, you can you can make that a very cogent strategic case for why we shouldn't be in that war anymore. But you can't really make a clear-cut case for how that withdrawal went and that that was as, as good as it could have gone. Because if you say that, there's just a lot of evidence of the contrary. Yeah. You, well, you're, you're sort of answering, like, and maybe I'm, or I'm anticipating your answer to what my next question was going to be, which is why did nobody in a senior role lose their job over the Afghanistan withdrawal? And maybe you tell me your answer. Maybe it's, you know, because it went according to plan. But why, why did nobody – why was no one sanctioned for that? I mean including like, you know, the flawed intelligence assessments arguably. I think you, actually you answered the question where it's like Biden went out there and owned it. Yeah. This is my call. Um, I don't think anyone – I'm sure no one told him – and I, I don't. I can't say that I actually have true evidence for this, but I'm sure no one told him, hey, Mr. President, if you say we withdraw, it's going to go clean. You know, I'm sure, I'm sure the military yeah, – no. There's no way. I'm sure the military – And even if they had, he would have said that you're full of it. Of course. So he – I'm sure he anticipated yeah. some level of, of chaos and, and even then still made the decision. So you have to kind of give a bit of a hat tip there. Um, so I think just he, he owned it, right? And if he owns it, he's like, this is my decision. I took it, and I had done a four-month review, and I pushed and prod, like, who are you going to fire? Um, you can then no longer believe that intelligence later, but you can then also go, well, look, Jake et al. pulled off a miraculous airlift. So, you know, all this to say is that I think if Biden hadn't been so sort of out there and forward being like, this is my, you know, kind of chest beating, like, this is my, this is my move. Maybe, maybe someone lost their job. Yeah. But Biden is also fiercely loyal, right? And I don't think no one really betrayed him. They executed his policy. Yeah. Well, the, the, the administration doesn't have to wait too long to go from, you know, what looks like a loss, even though maybe it's a win, but it's a mixed bag in Afghanistan to what seems to be a much more decisive win with the war in Ukraine, which is, a, I don't mean to you know frame the war in Ukraine as a win, but their response to it. You know, we won't go into all the details of it, but I mean, people will remember <clears throat> the administration was publicly warning people that Russia was about to invade. Uh, they were selectively leaking intelligence to the press, including to me, <laughs> which you write about in the book, too. <laughs> Thanks for the shout out. Of course. <laughs> um, uh, uh, but really, I mean, called it. They said he's going to invade. They, they you know, anticipated it. They got it right practically down to the minute that, that forces were going over into Ukraine. Um, and, you know, I think importantly, the administration marshals an international response uh, of outrage, condemnation, sanctions, you know, the West is standing together in the face of this aggression. Go up the tick the 80,000 foot view on this. What is working differently in the administration with Ukraine than worked with Afghanistan? Or is it just the same machine working? It's just that Afghanistan was always going to be crappy and Ukraine presented a much clearer path to success for you know, the United States involvement. Yeah, well, one is that they clearly wanted to prove themselves. And this is, again, sort of very quickly on Afghanistan, why I'm also confident that they know it wasn't a big win, because when you talk to them, they were like, you know, damn it. Like, you know, we here we are. We we're basically an A team of Democratic foreign policy types. And that's what we produced. 
So we need a moment of redemption. And as, as you know, it comes right up. I think I called you one of the best reporters we got in the book as well. So, I think you're saying something like trusted and respected. Oh, uh, well, okay. It must have been changed. but <laughs> <laughs> He's okay. <laughs> He's fine. Um, well, you are trusted and respected. Anyway, um, I like that you memorized it. <laughs> um, yeah, they, um, they, 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 there was a moment of redemption. Yeah. And they it comes very quickly. I think to to your question more specifically, the eighty thousand foot is the intel was so much clearer. Yeah, right, right. It, yeah, you have the eighteen to twenty four month timeline versus this thing is happening. It's happening, and we can see it happening, and we can see it happening. So that sharpens the mind. Right, and then they all mobilize and they go, okay, well, let's try to dissuade them through diplomacy, and let's also get our tell our allies what's going on, and let's figure out a public communications plan, and let's get some intel out there, and. Let's set up a list of punishments and a you know schedule and how we can all coordinate because they could see what was coming. And so that just makes it a lot easier. That said, just because you can see what's coming doesn't mean you produce a good policy. I mean, uh-huh. they, they just have the benefit of a really good, clear head start. And, they, and, and you go into, into some detail in the book, too, of, you know, it's not as though this administration started off thinking like Ukraine is our ally. They're our best friend. You know, we're going to stand with them. I mean, you have this great, you know, accounting of Zelensky coming to Washington to meet with Biden. It's almost like Biden's just like, you know, like, you know, kind of half-heartedly kind of entertaining a meeting with him. I mean, just sketch out a little bit about when Biden comes in, what the U.S.-Ukraine policy is. It was keep it off the desk. Like Even before that, there was a Biden-Putin meeting in Geneva, and the whole point of that meeting was, hey, you do the solar winds, you do the interference, you do Ukraine, knock it off. We will push back on you when you do. And the Biden team left Geneva like high-fiving, like we did it. He gets our red lines. Yeah, like, yeah, he's, yeah, that's yeah. in a box. And then he meets Zelensky, and he's, and he's basically like, hey, I talked to Putin. We're all good. <laughs> you know, We're all set here. And I know your country's being invaded right now. Um, but like, you know, we're, we're pretty set here. Um, and Zelensky's like, all right, I mean, you should still want to defend Ukraine. We're still being, you know, we've been invaded. There's still, we still have little green men in our country. And there was this genuine feeling in the Ukrainian camp that Biden just didn't care about them. Uh, the fact that he meets with Putin first, even though he calls Zelensky, but the fact that, you know, it's, he's just not talking about Ukraine. And even though he's out there talking about the defense of democracy, democracies, Ukraine's just not really at the tip of his tongue. We're dealing with Russia is. So there's just this sense that, like, this comedian over there who's leading that country, just not really at the level. And uh, I, if I may, sort of one of the, the newsier general themes of the book is we I think we all generally knew that the Zelensky-Biden relationship was tense, but, like, it was, like, yell match bad. Um, it was really, really bad. And so – and I know you've written this in other places, but I try to do my best to detail some scenes in the book that are, like, you know, Biden going, dude – Protect your city. Like, mobilize. What are you doing? Zelensky's like, don't you dare. Don't you mm-hmm. dare, mm-hmm. Um, you know, speak to me this way and scare this nation and 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 hurt our economy by saying claim we're going to be invaded. Like, we know the Russians better than you do. How dare you say such a thing? And Biden's, like, on occasion looking around as, you know, Oval Office going, like, who is this guy? Yeah. You know, what's going on? So, again, again, nothing sharpens the mind like having your country being invaded. Yeah. And then Zelensky's tone changes. But, like, it was, like, really, really bad U.S.-Ukraine relations during the first year. And, of, of course, they're better now, mm-hmm. um, but almost by necessity, not necessarily out of a sense of, like, Zelensky and Biden love each other. What's your conclusion on why Zelensky didn't believe that the Russians were coming? I mean, there were some, some people in his government, you know, notably Budanov, the military intelligence chief, believed it. And I think, you know, 
probably given his proximity through people he knows to longstanding relations with the CIA, was probably more likely to believe it. But why why wasn't Zelensky on board? Why wasn't he persuaded? Because it's so dumb. <laughs> this, I mean, like it is. <laughs> because why would anybody do this? Why would anyone do yeah, this? Yeah. I, it, which is kind of fascinating. And even the Americans were like, we're seeing what's happening and it makes no sense. Yeah. It just makes no sense. And Zelensky, I think, just kind of bought into that. I mean, yes, Budinov is telling him, hey, this is going to happen. But you also have, we should note, there were European governments who said this isn't happening. Absolutely. Right? And he's talking to them, too. So it's not just that his, Zelensky's only chains of information are his, his own guy and the U.S. He's talking to other governments who are saying, hey, you know, we think the Americans are kind of wrong here. Which led the Americans to go to Europe and talk to allies constantly and be like, you guys just don't see what we see. Or and to then, show them the intel in some cases. And right? then they show them and they're yeah. like, oh, uh, well, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> they, maybe you're right. That is an awful lot of tanks. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And there's a lot of blood bags. Yeah. <laughs> What's up with that? <laughs> right. So, and yeah. field hospitals. Yeah. So it just – it even took people with great intelligence apparatuses to you know, a long time to figure it out or to, to see it. And, of course, Zelensky – and I don't blame him, frankly, for going like – who would do this? Plus, they've or, they've already been here for you know eight years. Would he re, would he do this now? Yeah, like, you know, it's not like Biden has been soft on Russia. You're gonna do this now with Biden in office? Like yeah. that's where and 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 may, I know I get asked this question a lot as part of this uh, promotional tour. Is like, did the withdrawal from Afghanistan have anything to do with it? Uh, may, maybe I don't know. Yeah. I, I've never seen real evidence for that. But the sort of counter in my mind, and I know I know I've heard some Biden folks say that is like. Okay, but now you're saying the U.S. has more resources and time to f- not focus on Afghanistan, so maybe they have more time to focus on this. I don't know, but anyway, I, I think it just comes down to, I mean, if I if I'm being honest, if I were the leader of Ukraine, and you told me this is what Putin plans to do, considering the state of the world at the time, I'd be like, that makes just no sense. I I like to think that if you showed me the intelligence, I'd believe it. Yeah, but I can just imagine that at first blush, no way, and even then, because he's getting contradictory information, he's going with his prior. There's an interesting connective tissue on the intelligence between Afghanistan and, and Ukraine. You know, you actually on the in, in the Afghanistan pullout, you cite a senior administration official saying that the intelligence community is, you know, generally bad at assessing the will of a of nation's military to fight. And I think that was clearly true in the Afghanistan situation where you had, you know, forces basically just like dropping everything and going home. And it seems that was also true in the Ukraine situation where the intelligence community, while they accurately forecast the invasion, they thought that Russia would roll over the country, capture Kiev in 72 hours. You know, how much of that do you think was an underestimation of the willingness and the ability of Ukraine to repel the Russian invasion, which, of course, they did so successfully in the early days? Yeah, that's clearly a part of it. And uh, if, if I'm remembering correctly, CIA Director Bill Burns has now made figuring out the will of troops as like a a new target that the Intel analysts need to figure out. Right, because the thing they didn't get, to, they didn't do so well. Yeah, they missed yeah. it twice yeah. in, in, in quick succession, right? So um, that's something they, they need to work on. The, the, the clear thing, and, and you know, with the, a bit of time, I, the general conclusion has been the Afghans didn't have a government to fight for, whereas Ukraine did. Yeah. And so that, that helps. And plus there's a genuine sense of Ukrainian statehood of a nation where there isn't as much of an Afghanistan. And so that, that contributes. I say that now, and it sounds super obvious to me, but it's right. it, it just doesn't – it didn't seem to connect at the time. And also there was, we should note, this genuine fear of like, well, just look at what the Russians have versus what the Ukrainians have. There's just no way the Ukrainians can can fend off on that. 
and it feels like at this point now the Russians were too greedy too soon. Mm. They went all out when they probably could have done a more methodical campaign and they, pro- they probably would have had more success. But yeah. this belief that, like, they would be greeted as liberators, yep. um, I think, doomed them. And so, uh, you know, they, they frankly had their own faulty strategic thinking here that, that benefited the Ukrainians and not discounting the defense that Ukrainians pulled off. They did it brilliantly. Um, but the, the Russians sort of – the Russians did hand them a bit of an advantage there with a, with a strategic folly of a campaign. Yeah, well, let's let's talk about that because I mean now we're kind of in the present moment that mm-hmm. you know obviously you know the the book is that your book is the first 2 years but now we're at this point with the war in Ukraine where you know I think it's safe to say the counterinsurgency has failed you know the the one that the US both funded and trained the Ukrainians for and equipped them for has not resulted in taking back large territory from 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 the Russians that they'd occupied you know I've always kind of been of the belief that we're just kind of slowly getting to the point where we finally just get everybody to agree to some kind of agreement to stop, whether that's a treaty or not, we'll see. But but clearly, you know, resolving Congress is slipping. You know, the Ukrainians are absolutely exhausted. They are potentially going to be running out of munitions. Situate the current events of the war in light of the administration's approach and also, you know, contrasting that with the success they had in the early phases of the war in terms of, you know, getting the calls on intel right on the invasion, but also marshalling this world support for Ukraine, which now is straining. So I I should say I was at the uh, Biden rally in Warsaw where he says Kiev stands strong, stands proud, stands free. This is in um, about February of uh, last year or so. I I forget exactly when that was. No, that was in – anyway, that was last year. Um, And – I mean, it felt like a campaign rally for NATO in the West. Like, they were playing Twisted Sister, and there were, you know, <laughs> flags everywhere, and, like, people dancing, and they're having a good time. Like, look how great this is. We nailed it. Really, all that was missing was a Mission Accomplished banner. Yeah. Like, it, it, that, that was truly the feeling, and that's when I stopped writing the book, so it sort of ends with a bit of an optimistic note. Sure. Ca- <laughs> counteroffensive fails, and now there's a bit of introspection about... You know, were there any missteps? Should the U.S. have armed Ukraine earlier, right? Should there have been sanctions on Russia? Remember, there was that debate about, well, if we send too much too soon, the Russians will escalate more than they need to. And if we sanction them now, then there's no deterrent factor. So there's some critics about that now. There's some critics about, you know, they slow walk sending long-range missiles and fighter jets and other things. That maybe there was too much worry about the Russians now. And, and we're at this point where the Ukrainians just don't have enough infantry, ammunition, and so there, there has to be – I'm not saying that the administration will you know, move away from Ukraine or not defend it anymore or not support it. But the, the, the sort of optimistic nature of you know, they're going to win, like there was a, they're going to win, I'm not sure that's there anymore. No, I don't think it is either. And so now it's like, okay, well, how do they win the most? <laughs> mm-hmm. How do we get them something? And I will admit that I've always been of the belief – that there was going to be some sort of like Crimea for Eastern Ukraine trade. I don't know exactly the parameters of that would be, mm. but that's that's just sort of always been in my head mm-hmm. that there's going to be a, a recognition that Crimea is Russian and we get back some spots of Eastern Ukraine and maybe that works out. Um, I don't know if that's where we're headed. And of course, you've got the Ukrainians already working on this this peace conference and you know their 10-point plan that the Russians aren't a part of. Um, but it, I think we're slowly moving to a recognition that I'll put it this way. Someone once told me for a story, you know, if we recognize we're not going to do this forever, what are we going to do? And I think that's what that's the question they're starting to ask themselves now. That's kind of where we are right now, isn't it? Yeah. How do you explain Republican lawmakers, 
what's the right word for this? Going soft on and standing up to Russia and 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 their lack of support. Not all of them by mm-hmm. any means, but but some of them quite vocally. Uh, their lack of support for Ukraine. I mean, how do you understand that in contrast to you know a party that you know whose president won the Cold War? Yeah, well, that's not the party anymore. I mean, and I don't mean that negatively necessarily. I just like that's – it's not Reagan's party. It's a Trump party, and Trump and Reagan do not agree on foreign policy. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that there is – in this part of the – it is a part of it. Like the, the Trump reaction to – well, actually somewhat with Obama, right? Comes in, opposes the Iraq war. Hey, we've got some stuff at home we've got to focus on. Trump goes in and goes, we've got a lot of stuff at vo- home we got to focus on. And you have Biden trying to marry the two to a certain extent. You have Republicans going, look, why are we going to help Ukraine, which they see as a corrupt country, you know, barely a democracy with a leader who has postponed elections uh, against a country with nuclear weapons and everyone's afraid of nuclear war. And why would we fund a war when we've got all these issues at home, the immigration, the border? I mean, it's, it's kind of encapsulated in um, the turn for me. I've been thinking about this for the last 24 hours. Lindsey Graham. Mm is not going to the Munich Security Conference, his favorite conference in the world, mm-hmm. this like super transatlantic, mm-hmm. you know, Western, to go to the border right. <laughs> instead. And if there's anything that's made his turn from like John McCain to the Trump, it's the fact that he's willing to miss MSC. Yeah. Um, so I will I will not see him in Munich <laughs> this week. <laughs> but like that's, I think that's part of it. And, and you can be cynical about it. And I'm sure there are some political calculations here. I don't want to discount that. But I do think, having talked to a bunch of people from Trump land and, and, people adopting some Trump ideas and, and, and Bidenism, like there really is a move to focus on the home front and make and you could focus at home first and connect foreign policy to it as opposed to do stuff abroad and find a way to connect it. At home. Mm-hmm. And so I think Republicans are just more turbocharged on that yeah. than Democrats are. And I think there's also the element, I mean, Trump is, is obviously running for president and he's not been elected, but, you know, Trump despises Ukraine. I mean, Trump Trump thinks that Ukraine interfered in the election against him and not Russia in 2016. And, and you know, it strikes me that, you know, they, I think we're probably – we're not yet thinking about that. And maybe as reporters, we're certainly not writing about it. But that is going to become a, you know, hugely volatile element, I think, in all of this as Trump becomes the nominee, presuming he is the nominee, um, that this is not someone who is pro-Ukraine in, in any way. Right. And I think actually, frankly, everyone is waiting for November. Like if I could I've heard the case made and I think it's relatively relatively cogent. If you're Zelensky, this is probably the time you want to make a deal now because you've got Biden. He'll help you make a deal on better terms and you're, you don't have the stuff you need. Russia's about to mobilize 500,000 people like maybe this is the time to do it. Because maybe come the summer and the spring, it could get worse. Maybe they, maybe the Ukrainians do well, but that's the fear is that the Russians are going to do particularly well come later this year. And if Trump wins, ugh, you know, it's not going to go well for you because I don't think Trump's going to help out Ukraine too much. He just wants the war done. And he wants mm-hmm. to say, I helped end the war regardless. Well, regardless is too strong. But he probably won't care too much about the terms as much as, let's say, Biden would. So, But I think at this point you've got the Ukrainians and and the Russians waiting to see what happens in November because then that might change their fortunes. And I think Zelensky at this point does not want to make a deal. Mm-hmm. Putin clearly, and also he needs someone to make a deal with. Putin sure. does want to make a deal. Sure. So we're in this weird, deadly holding pattern until mm-hmm. November, it feels. Yeah, right. Um, let's talk about some more about some current events um, while I have you here. Yeah, please. Uh, uh, so, all right. So the war in Israel is entering its fourth month mm-hmm. now. Um, you spent 
a couple of years now thinking about the Biden administration's budget to foreign policy. Um, if you had to write the Israel war chapter for this book, what would you be thinking about right now? Uh, so you might, there is an Israel chapter in the book, mm-hmm. uh, and which is yes, the earlier Israel yes, chapter. Yeah. The, yeah. And there's, um, right. So they, Israel and Hamas fought in 2021 and it was an 11 day thing. And it was an 11 day thing in the Biden administration's mind because of the strategy they employed, which was, Hey, Israel, we get it. Defend yourself. Do what you got to do. Hamas had launched rockets initially. Do what you got to do. Defend yourself. And then quietly they were like, you guys got to calm down. You guys got to <laughs> not do too much here. Uh, let's not overstep. And on plus progressive pressure, you know, so Biden could go, hey, you know, I'm like my left flank here is, uh, is you guys are losing yeah. on that. That worked. And they, they attribute one of the reasons why, if not mostly attribute it to, to that strategy. It's why Netanyahu sort of calmed down and, and stopped the war after 11 days. They tried it again. Right. Of course, October 7th was brutal and horrible. 1,200 people, 1, you know, people died and were killed in horrifying ways. Um, and so it's a bigger scale. Mm-hmm. But they effectively employed the same strategy. Yeah. If we you know, hug, literally hug Bibi, mm-hmm. literally hug him, help with the pro-Israel bona fides, and then start to criticize more quietly underneath and try to get some suasion with them. And it hasn't worked for a couple of reasons. One, of course, the the genuine trauma of the attack. Two, the politics in Israel are tougher with his far right coalition, and also the fact that the public is behind the war. Right? I mean, it would be yeah. an unpopular thing to stop it. Yeah. And our public and their public. Fair enough. Exactly. Yeah. And the other issue here is that you know, the Biden administration would think it could go worse if they had no real sway over Bibi, and so by still being friendly with him, they can at least get Israel to think about, okay, well, how do we get civilians out of Rafah? Or, you know, how do we not bomb everything? Um, And you'll hear, I mean, the administration has been explicit about this. You know, the Israeli campaign would have been way more all out had it not been for us. So I'm sort of thinking of this moment, not to bring up Lindsey Graham again, but um, there's this moment where people ask him, like, why are you so close to Trump? Why do you defend him so often? And he basically said, so I can have sway with him. And I'm so, we're kind of pursuing a Lindsey Graham strategy with Israel is like, we're not agreeing with everything they're doing. We don't really like it. And we're yeah. telling them that in, in private. But if we break with them, then Israel's going to be like, well, what do we need America for? And it's interesting to me that everyone asked the Biden administration, like, why aren't you guys you know, sanctioning some members of the administration, uh, of the government there or like withholding military aid? And it's like, it doesn't even feel like it's under consideration. They know what the levers are. Yeah. But they're not pulling them because they, they think it might actually make it all worse. Yeah, and in the meantime, you see these you know, every day, the drip, drip of stories saying Biden previously very angry at Netanyahu, you know, saying bad things about him privately. They're letting that get out. I mean, as a way of, if I, I think they think it's a way of somehow putting pressure on Netanyahu. But to your point, I mean, I think unless the administration did something like withholding aid or withholding critical parts for aircraft mm-hmm. or something, I think the Netanyahu government is looking at this being like, you know, you can say all this you want, but you're still with us. Yeah, and and it could be uh, to pressure Netanyahu, all these leaks. It could also be to quiet down the left flank. Yeah. It could be to quiet down criticism. Like, hey, it's not like we like the guy, you know? Um, right. Well, it's like John Finer, you know, you know, being revealed that he privately told, you know, Arab American groups, you know, that we – you know, there were some early flaws in our approach to how we handled this. So they're doing a little bit of mea culpa, aren't they? And there are politics involved, right? Sure, I mean, you, you, absolutely. You, you, you need Michigan and you need progressives to come out and vote for you in what's very likely to be a tight election. I mean, there's, yeah. there's a lot of that here. Um, I just find it – there was a bit of a – I have my own mea culpa here in which uh, – so Biden gives a press conference. This is um, you know, a bit ago. 
and where he says, hey, this Israeli, Israeli response has been over the top. Yes. And and people are focused on, you know, he slipped uh, he's Mexican president Sisi when he's really the president of Egypt. Fine. And I on Twitter or X or whatever the heck it's called now was like, hey, actually, the over the top thing is the most consequential line. Sure. And I had some people reach out to me and go, well, is it? I mean, sure. He said it's over the top. But what are they going to do? And that's a fair question. And the question a lot of people are asking is like, all right, you're welcome to say BB's bad and he's, you know, his government is awful and um, they've been they've gone over the top. But like, are you actually going to do anything about it? And I've seen really no evidence that they will other than sanction for people in the West Bank for violence, which is not a small thing. But is it like historically important? Is it going to break the relationship? No. And so I. They're trying to walk this line of like we're making – they're trying to literally make everyone happy, and we all know that doesn't go well. It doesn't work well in my life, and it doesn't work well in foreign policy. Yeah, yeah. I, I was in Israel last month for reporting, mm. and it was – I mean they love Joe Biden in Israel. He's a rock star. So, I mean I, 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 I now haven't been back in a couple of weeks, so I don't know whether or not the you know over-the-top line resonates with the public there. But there was no sense that I got just in talking to people, whether in the government or, or just on the street, that, you know – they thought they were at risk of losing American support. So, I mean, it's to your point, it's it's the it's the line that Biden has to walk right now. Um, I want to ask you about Lloyd Austin, uh, who is back in the hospital. <laughs> poor guy. <laughs> no, he is poor guy. Yes, poor but guy. I hope he gets better. <laughs> I hope he gets better too. But how do you explain his decision to keep his cancer diagnosis and his hospitalization a secret? Oh man, um, I will tell you. It's not to, to brag, but like since when I was being told this when we were breaking the story, I was like, it just it just doesn't feel right. Like, how could this be true? Uh, and the more people I talked to, they're like, yeah, we didn't know. <laughs> it's like, I, you know, I, I was telling my editors, like, I don't, this is clearly true, and I don't know how it's true. Uh, so excuse my, my still genuine, I'm like still processing that. No, it's, it's, it's pretty crazy. Yeah. It's, it's wild. I mean, he's a, he's a private guy. Yeah. Um, he's a private guy. He, understandably, he's got a you know, horrifying diagnosis. I mean, it seems like his prognosis is good. And good thank, thank God. But, um, you know, he's a private guy. He doesn't necessarily want to talk about his, his stuff out there, although you do sacrifice that privacy when you are a figure of, yeah. of some importance, which which he is. Um, I have a bit of a story. Um, years ago when I was an Atlanta Council think tank uh, program assistant, we were running an event, um, a thing called Commander Series, where we had four stars and et cetera people come in, and he was the CENTCOM commander at the time. So he was coming in, and he was going to give a speech. And, like, the day before... Well, we sent them the press list and, like, who was coming. And then they go, oh, we don't want this televised. And, like, wh- wh- why wouldn't you want it done? So, oh, we thought this was an academic discussion and the general doesn't really like to, you know, be so open with it. And it's like, uh, he's a four-star. He's, in a, you know, he's a grown man. He's leading American operations in the Middle East. He should be able to speak openly about it. And it was a big fight. And the Atlanta Council in the end decided that, they, that the cameras would leave per their request, but reporters could still be there. And then that leaked out and it became a big thing for him. And then you realize that, like, one, he's not that he's not that dynamic a speaker. I'm not mm-hmm. trying to knock him. I mean, he's, he's, he's just not, he's not comfortable. No, with he's it. not comfortable. He yeah. doesn't like it. He's a private guy. And then, like, he still remembers, you know, being in front of John McCain and being wrecked publicly for, you know, he was in charge of the Syria uh, training program and. And McCain's like, how many people have you trained? And I forget the number, but it was like eight <laughs> or whatever yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. And McCain's like, really? Like after all this time? So he's just a guy who's never really had a great experience out in public. And I will say, you know, he's he's in the same way Biden owned Afghanistan. He's owned this. He's like, I didn't say anything. That's on me, not my team. I still have some questions about the team, <laughs> truthfully. But 
Like, man, he, that, that was his call. And then when he gave a address when he was back in the Pentagon talking about it, he was like, look, I missed an opportunity to talk about a public health issue. And, and one that has some some racial components as well. Yeah, of course. So, so um, now I, I feel like he's owned it. And now, I mean, if, I feel like the Pentagon is going to announce anytime he puts on a Band-Aid. Totally. <laughs> I mean, they put out the uh, – on Super Bowl Sunday, putting out the statement about the, the bladder issue. So they, they they wasted no time, it yeah. seemed like. Uh, back to Biden in Afghanistan, something more current. Um, obviously, the, uh, the special counsel, her, has come out with a report – about classified documents and materials that were found in Biden's possession. A lot of the material that he took with him from the White House had to do with Afghanistan and his legacy on Afghanistan and Pakistan, stuff he shared with his ghostwriter. You know, what were you thinking as you saw how much of this stuff that he took with him was about that conflict and his positions that he had as vice president um, and his decision to, you know, want to get that out in the form of, you know, a memoir. So I'm just curious what you think about that. And then also just the, what the hell were you doing with classified documents in your house piece of it too, which we're we're all curious about. Yeah, well, let's, we can start with the second one first. He shouldn't have had that. I mean, he said, yes, it's bad staff work. I should have been there. Like, okay, fine. But you were sharing with your ghostwriter. You're on tape. Yeah, you knew you had it. You knew you had it. So like, okay. I mean, I guess if the, if the difference is, you know, National Archives called and they wanted it and you didn't fight them? Okay. Sure. Fine. As Trump fought them, okay, maybe that might be the difference. But, like, he shouldn't have had them. He knew he had them and it was going to show up in a memoir or something. Yeah. Okay, fine. So, all right. It it was bad. <laughs> there's, no, there's no denying that it was bad and it should be called out as such. Um, I think, and this is more of an educated guess, but I think Biden will feel history will vindicate him on Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. That everyone had it wrong. He had it right kind of from the start. The right decision was to move to this counterterrorism plus campaign. It was to get out of the war. And the fact that we didn't do it earlier was a, was a mistake. And he has, again, the personal connection. You know, his son was in, it was in the military and died. And it could be, in Biden's mind, from complications from his time in Iraq and all that. Um, like, Biden has a connection to it. I mean, there was a moment after the decision where he's at Arlington Cemetery with reporters. And he's talking about, like, losing children in war and he just looks at all the headstones he's like just just look at them all and i think the just look at them all is in his head constantly i mean every president says and i do actually think they mean it it's the gravest decision to have to send american sons and daughters into battle and i think he'll be like there was bipartisan decades-long mistakes made here and i was called it right in the obama years i failed to do it then i got it right now and in the even though there was the chaos at kabul Eventually, that will be a historical blip. The right decision was I saved, I saved America tons of more you know, grieving families. And I think that's how he sees – honestly, it's the way he sees not only himself in that conflict, but I think how he sees himself in foreign policy. If I can stop more grieving families, whether it's in the military context or an economic context, he will have considered his presidency a success. You think he's too old to run again? <sighs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. They're both old. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. You know, they're they're both old guys. Um, I it will be a different campaign because last time it was COVID and he could, you know, basically just do a bunch of zooms. Yeah. Now he has to be a lot more dynamic and he has to be out there. I will say that when he speaks and he's like really feeling it, he can still be a little, you know, like older, like vintage Joe, not old yeah, Joe. That's right. Um, but uh, it's. Like it, it, I think the poll I saw today was eighty six percent of Americans think he's too old. Yeah, so like, there's no question that they have to confront that. And I, I'm surprised, frankly. I mean, again, I'm not a domestic politics guy, but I'm surprised still 
that they're not trying to take that head on. Like, it's not a secret he's an old guy. Yeah. And and Trump, for his own age, is out there constantly giving speeches and, and seeming vigorous. And, like, so make Biden do that. Get out there. Like, have him speak. Have him sound cogent. Have him... And if they're worried he's going to make too many gaffes, then, like, that's just who he is. That's just Joe Biden, right? Well, that's the thing is, like, now it's – is is he just Joe gaffing or is he gaffing because he's old? Like, I, right. I don't – I think that's sort of the, the question. I thought, And I thought the her report, which, I mean, you know, I think understandably the White House thinks that a lot of the references to his age and forgetfulness were unfair and gratuitous. But that just underscores the degree to which this is such a, you know – a political vulnerability for him is because it is now set in people's minds, and it already was, that you know that he's too old for the job. But you know, not that I'm not saying that your book is not trying to make the case that he's not too old for the job, but your book makes a pretty compelling case that he's very involved in American foreign policy and decision making, which strikes me as a pretty good indication that temperamentally he is doing the job. The, the thing he knows the best is foreign policy. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to agree with him on his views, right? Robert Gates certainly doesn't. Yeah. Um, but, like, it's the thing he knows, the thing he's most excited about. And he's got a national security advisor he, who he vibes with. I mean, my, one of the sort of, I guess, the implicit arguments is that Jake Sullivan is perhaps the most uh, powerful national security advisor since since Kissinger and, and sort of that Nixon-Kissinger connection. Because of his closeness to Biden? Closeness to Biden, their their temperament, the fact that, you know, Biden's kind of like a four corners guy. Like, I'm going to give you the, the the boundaries of the, or maybe sandbox. Like, I'll give you the bound. You can play in the sandbox mm-hmm. as long, just don't go outside of it. And so, you know, Jake spends a lot of time, I think, doing a lot of nitty gritty work that a national security advisor doesn't necessarily need to do. But because he's been given that um, carte blanche and he's allowed to do it. And then he goes to the president. And he says, Mr. President, like, here's what we've got to. Uh, and Biden's like, as long as it's in my four corners and you recommend it, chances are I'm going to do it. Um, but anyway, all this says that you're, yes, the book is not necessarily like Biden can do it another four years. Yeah. But it is, there's no question that the, the foreign policy of the first two years were very Biden-y. Yeah. Um, and very much of, of his thinking and, and years long experience. And it's not, he didn't do everything perfectly, obviously, but like Biden's imprint is on it. And again, sort of the intellectual part of it is. Bi- this is all Biden, but there is like a sousant. There is an essence of Trump to it as well, which uh, to me, if there's sort of a, a meta conclusion, it's like the American foreign policy was one way from 1945, kind of to Obama, but definitely to Trump. And now Biden had a chance to kind of bring it back to go to American foreign policy classic. And instead he updated a software in my mind and updated it to a place that it's now a mo- lot more populisty uh, than it used to be. So you, and you, you, and your subhead of the book is the fight to restore American foreign policy after Trump. So did the president succeed? Arguably. I mean, in the sense that our allies more on board with American foreign policy? Sure. Is, you know, is China more competed against? Sure. Is climate change cared about more? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, is American foreign policy more traditional than it was under Trump? That, that I think is unquestionable. The... But what I think is fascinating is the most, you know, democratic foreign policy types realized there was virtue in a Trump foreign policy. Mm. That there was that there was like real there was a real there was meat on those bones that there was a real need for it. And it what yes, there's a lot of Trump just like flying, you know, off the you know, just kind of going off the cuff and whatever. Mm-hmm. But whether staff work or also just I mean, his his critiques came from a real place. And it was one that other people felt and and one that uh, that now I think a lot of experts realize maybe it was time. Like the com- competition with China, yes, people were feeling that. But, like, that was Trump really pushing it. 
and kind of turned the city. And everyone's like, yeah, you know, you're, he's right. So you do have the, the Biden folks go like, yes, you know, the last administration diagnosed the problem, but they had the wrong solution. Well, yeah, I mean, yes, you work with allies more and whatever, but like you're doing a lot of the same stuff. So if Trump wins, do you think he will undo a lot of Biden policies or do you expect more continuity? I would say the two biggest changes would be, or my three biggest changes would be, um, Ukraine no longer is defended, mm-hmm. climate change not a thing, <laughs> and uh, probably be a lot friendlier with autocrats. So pretty big changes. <laughs> no, pretty big. Yeah. I mean, I'm not. I'm not trying. Again, I'm not trying yeah. to say that Biden and Trump are the same. I'm trying yeah, to say yeah. that they they shared some pretty big. They share this other same general underlying assessment, which is mm-hmm. there needs to be more of a connection with with the domestic front and yeah. more focus on the home front. Then they then they diverge in other places, but there are you know mix and matches. Um, but yes, it would it would be different. I mean, there, and there's no question that Biden was a lot of change from Trump. But there was this. I, my initial belief going into this was it would almost be a firm break. Mm. It would almost be full change, and there was a lot more continuity than I expected, and there would be a lot more continuity. Than, than I think people would expect in a Trump 2.0. Um, but there's no question that the changes are big changes. Yeah, yeah. So, what do you think of Trump's recent NATO comments? Of, uh, you know, he reportedly said uh, that uh, – no, he didn't reportedly say no, he said speech. it. <laughs> he said it. <laughs> I forget sometimes he just says it. He says it. Uh, that, you know, basically he told a, a leader of a big European country – not sure which one it is – but, uh, you know, if you weren't up on your dues, you know, not only would I not defend you if Russia attacked you, but I would encourage Russia to attack you. I, I was surprised that the media was surprised. Like, this, yeah, is, yeah. this is he's been saying this for a while. Yeah. I actually thought the bigger news of the weekend was him saying we're going to stop giving foreign aid to everybody and they're all going to be loans. That's a wholesale change in how we do totally. that. That would be completely different. And that's totally new for him. It sounds like he's trying to outdo Nikki Haley's whole thing of, like, we're not going to get $48 billion to countries that don't adopt American views. And now he's just like, no, we're just not going to do foreign aid, period. Yeah. Any country can has to give it back. So that, to me, is actually a bigger change on foreign policy. Like, we, I'm not saying that it would be inconsequential <laughs> if, if the U.S. did nothing um, after a Russian invasion of a country that didn't pay dues. I had this joke when I was um, – I told, you know, only a few people, uh, but I'll say it now. <laughs> go, ahead, go ahead and tell thousands. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, but it was like it, it was when I was doing a lot of Trump analysis uh, in my previous uh, my pre-journalistic life. And I was like, uh, you know, Russia invades a country and, you know, Trump's in the Oval Office and they go, Mr. President, like, you know, X country just got invaded. And he goes, show me their spending charts. <laughs> and um it seems like that joke is not super jokey now. Um, now, right. now we have to say, because Trump just says things sometimes, like, would he genuinely say if the Russians go into Lithuania or Estonia or whatever, or Poland, you know, would he just sit by? And I, I can't imagine the pressure on him to do something and, not, and on people around him to do something would be so strong. Um, and he's pushed back on Russia a lot, despite all of his, you know, Putin stuff like. He, he his administration did a lot to push back on. Yeah, on, they on did. Russia. They were quite tough on Russia. So it's it's not unreasonable to believe that like this is a classic Trump thing of like I'm going to scare the Europeans into spending more. Right. But if you know when the rubber hits the road, like I'd actually do something. But the fact that he says it at all um, undermines. I mean, the the, the alliance in general. I mean, it, as many people are going to say, well, he can't withdraw the U.S. officially from NATO because of the Senate thing, and also like it's hard to do. 
Um, okay, but the whole point of NATO is Article 5. An attack on one is an attack on all. And even if you signal you're not going to do it, then the, the sort of the raison d'etre of the entire organization is, it goes away. Totally. Uh, okay, while well, I have you here, I would be remiss if I did not ask you about something completely off the foreign policy yeah. trap. Let's do it. Um, which is uh, your Dobbs scoop. <laughs> sure. From uh, 2022? Yeah, May, so May 2nd, 2022, mm-hmm. uh, 8.32 p.m. You remember, the, you remember the date and time yeah. very well. For those who need a refresh, uh, you and your political colleague, uh, Josh Kirstein, are the ones who broke the story that the Supreme Court had drafted an opinion overturning Roe v. Wade. You published a draft opinion of it. Uh, you were a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for that. There are many of us, myself included, who think you should have won the Pulitzer Prize for that, but that's another podcast. Um, I'm not going to ask you who your source was, obviously, but like, just give us a little flavor of what reporting that was like, and then I want to ask you about the political implications of it. Uh, obviously intense. I mean, I'd never been a part of anything that big. I mean, we yeah. all sort of knew once the document was in front of us, it was just like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, we, we have a moment where you're like, is this real or? Well, of course. I mean, yeah. you, that look, I, I can't say how long we took just for multiple reasons, sure. but this was very much like we're in the era of, you know, Project Veritas and, yeah. and hacking and like, you don't know. It's hard to know. I think it was kind of great that, you know, I'm not a legal mind. Josh very much is. And we both read it. And I came from the conclusion of like, it's it's feels super real, and 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 I can't imagine anyone would fake this. And Josh said something along the lines of like, yeah, I mean that you can't you can't fake that. Like that's Alito. Like he's he's someone who's covered the Supreme Court knows it. He's like that's that's who it is, and it would require the greatest you know fake document job of all time yeah. to pull that off. Yeah. So then it was a matter of like, okay, well there's some formatting stuff and whatever, and like let's figure this out. And in the end, we were you know extremely confident that we yeah. had what we had. We were confident from, from the start, but like. You don't want to get that wrong, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And of course, you know, if you can imagine from uh, the higher echelons of Politico and Axel Spring and all that, like if if you publish that and you say hey, we have the draft and it's not true, then like Politico won't cease to exist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So everyone wanted to make sure, understandably, that we had it, but like we were confident. And of course, we weren't going to put anything out until we we were sure. And there, there it is. Was there anything about the reaction to the to the story that surprised you? Um. You knew it was going to be huge, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, two things come to mind. Well, the, one is that John Roberts confirmed it so quickly. Mm. I mean that uh, that he did. So the next day, he's like, "Yep, this thing is true, but it's not the final product." And look, Josh had been saying the whole time, like, "We expect the Supreme Court." He expected the Supreme Court not to like not say, say not say much because uh-huh. they because they don't. And he was like, "Don't." I, that's too strong. He's like, "Don't expect them to come out like and, and sort of you know, confirm it, confirm it." Yeah, yeah. That's exactly. Um, that's better. Sorry, my my memory's a little f- fuzzy about no, it. Of course, sort of that. But it was more that, and uh, so that was a surprise. And of course, Josh and I were like, "Oh my god!" Like you know, whoa, cool. Yeah, <laughs> that, breathe, that, breathe a little easier, probably. Right. And then look, there were concerns, of course, of like you know, Josh and I don't want to be the story. Yeah, the story is bigger than us, and you know, we recognize we're two odd packages for a story about this. Yeah, um, <laughs> I don't think had you ever worked together before. No, we hadn't worked together, and on top of that, you know. Two guys writing about abortion, like you know, yeah, yeah. so so you know, uh, sure. We yeah, just didn't, yeah. we didn't want to be the story for and for not just that, but many other reasons. And so for Roberts to confirm it, like that whole thing went away. Of course, there's still stuff about you know the source and whatever. But um, but the other thing that surprised me is you know we were in the in the Politico newsroom when it came out, and you know the TVs were like and that are on to cable news, and you know, Chris Hayes picks it up and he's talking about it and whatever, and then I think Fox News was next. And Sean Hannity's talking about it, and he's like, "I don't think this is real." 
<laughs> I don't think this is real. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is fa- which is interesting to see real time, like him process it. Yeah, yeah. And then Shannon Bream was on, who used to be a clerk for Clarence Thomas. <clears throat> She's like, Sean, I have it on very good authority that this is real. And Sean's like, I don't know. I'm not sure. It makes no sense. And Bream's like, Sean, I have it on very good authority that this is real. And so that was sort of one of the big moments. I was like, okay, we're already getting like effectively confirmation from yeah, 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 the Supreme yeah, yeah, Court yeah. justice. This is true. But I, I have to remind folks. I mean, I, you know, I. Obviously, proud of the scoop that we had, and 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 and, and recognized the enormity of it. But clearly, this and this was starting to leak out already, right? I mean, the Wall Street Journal had um, in the op-ed pages, like, oh, you know, if anyone's gonna, everyone's going to write, it's going to be Alito, and like, mm-hmm. yeah, it's gonna, so like, th- there was clearly already something in the ether out there. Mm-hmm. Um, we weren't necessarily alone, but of course, we had the thing itself. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah. there was really sort of three stories in one, right? It was like that anything leaked out at all. We have a dot, and then we have the document. And it's, of course, about the biggest Supreme Court case in, like, forever. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, I mean, it, it, turned, it did turn out to be correct. The Supreme Court did overturn Roe v. Wade. Um, so what, if you, if now, in hindsight, what do you think are the, uh, uh, the political consequences and fallout of that decision? I mean, we're not political reporters per se, but, you know, we write about the commander-in-chief, who, of course, has to be elected. So where does the Dobbs decision, do you think, figure in Trump's campaign? Yeah, I mean, for— well, Trump is very much, if I, if I read him correctly, I've not followed this super closely, I have to be honest, but I believe he's not saying, he's not calling for a national abortion ban. Right. Um, which is, I think, also Nikki Haley's position. Um, he is very much like, leave it to the states, fine. And then you have Biden going, I will restore Roe. And I, uh, I codify it, I guess, which I find, I mean, you need Congress for that. Um, so that's a big ask um, and a big promise. But I think we can all see that there's clearly energy behind it. Even in conservative places, you're seeing a lot of folks come out because they don't want o- abortion overturned. And so there's there's clear energy. And if Biden's going to have any chance of winning, I think he needs to sort of recapture some of that. And so it's I, I, I don't know what's in Trump and Haley's heart. Like maybe they do want an, an abortion. national. I, I genuinely don't know. But the fact that they're saying what they're saying could be one that they truly believe it, which all well and good. But it could also be a political calculation because the second they say, hey, national abortion ban, you're going to lose a lot of people. Totally. Totally, um, and, and 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 the Dobbs decision may be the headwind that ultimately keeps him from being reelected. I mean, he's the dog who got the car. He runs in 2016, saying, "I'm going to appoint judges that justices that overturn Roe v. Wade." Mission accomplished. And okay, now you have to run on that record. <laughs> Could be, and then like again, you know, our story or not, that was going to be the decision. Yeah, that's so, true. So, um, the the the, the decades long movement to overturn Roe, they got it. Right. And now there is going to be there was always going to be sort of political consequences from it. I I think the the sort of overturn row crowd is more surprised at the energy uh, behind it. Yeah, um, that that's my sort of <laughs> unexpert uh, uh, view. But uh, you Paisal has to capture that. But it, I, 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 that's what they seem to say in the political commentary is like if Biden's going to win and he, he needs that coalition that like, you know, codify row coalition to. To back them, and so there's a, that's like a very clear difference. Like we're talking about continuity and change. Like yeah. that's a massive difference between the two. Um, I, yeah, skeptical of whether Biden can pull it off. And the same, this and it's sort of a view. Taking back to foreign policy to a certain extent, I always get mad at every presidential debate. One because they don't talk about my stuff, but yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but also like almost everything they say 
requires Congress. It's like when I, you know, yeah, what it's like. You, if you don't have the numbers, you don't have the numbers. And actually, I that's so why I remember sort of like. Nikki Haley was like, "You can, you're welcome to say you want a national abortion ban, but you don't have the votes, mm-hmm. and we don't have the votes." Mm-hmm. So, which is why I'm like, just talk about foreign policy then, because that's what a president can basically <laughs> just do on their own. Like that actually matters. Like yes. you can, whatever you feel is what you can do. Yeah. All this other stuff, which, which of course, I'm not saying the policy doesn't matter. I'm just saying like the notion that the president can just like through force of will get all this stuff done is yeah. not true. But on foreign policy, it is. Yeah, <laughs> elect me, and I will invade the following countries. Yeah, I mean that's a, that's like a more believable platform yes. than I will like save social security. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, our last question of the tradition on our show is, on Chatter is I reach into the Chatter box, Ooh-hoo. which I have sitting right here. And I'm going to select for you a question that has been written previously. I'm going to select it at random. This is going to be the last question. I like that it's an actual Chatter box. It's an actual Chatter box. Okay. If you could give one piece of advice to your 20-year-old self, what would it be? Other than it gets better. And I don't want to <laughs> co-opt that. But <laughs> I'm not trying to co-opt that. No, um, it's actually a piece of writing advice I got, and, mm. I, and um, it's never underestimate the audience's intelligence, but never overestimate their knowledge, mm. which has been very helpful. And I started my journalism career at Vox, which, of course, is like an explanatory website, and yeah. so that was v- very much a guiding light for me. And yeah. then, you know, I'm, my audience is smart, but they don't necessarily know this thing, and they're coming to this article because they want to know about this thing. Yeah. And even now, as I write a newsletter, I write a book, you know, I'm, you're picking up the book because you care about these issues. Right. And so I, 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 you have a general knowledge and I get that, but don't, I, I should not suppose that you know everything. And so I'm not trying to be pedantic when I sort of explain things. I right. just think it's, it's, it's for, I know I need it because I follow the, and you follow the news every day. And sometimes like, wait, what is that? Yeah, yeah. What does this mean? Like, yeah, yeah. or I'm, or you're coming to the story halfway through. So anyway, um, I would say that I could have used that, uh, not only just dating advice, uh, but, um, <laughs> But in just my general conversations, I try to be very clear and I don't try to assume people know everything. And, I, and I'm also I don't know everything. I'm, I'm very dumb on a lot of stuff. Uh, and I recognize that any math and science teacher I've ever had would, would, would agree. <laughs> right, right, right. I think a lot of us who specialize in words probably have that experience. Yeah. Too. Well, I think that it's good advice. And I think that you succeeded in this book because people will pick this up and they will know the characters here. Right. You will know who Jake Sullivan is probably if you're reading this book. But people will find things that they, not only that they didn't know, but they will look at them through, I think a new lens and it's a very cogent argument and it's a great read so congratulations thank you the book is the internationalists the fight to restore american foreign policy after trump by alex ford my friend thanks for being here thanks for having me this is fun it was an honor that was chatter a production of lawfare and goat rodeo please subscribe to the podcast and find us on twitter at that was chatter 